Transmitter device activated. Coordinate set for Earth 2. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Earth 2 podcast, your weekly show that explores and chronicles the pre-crisis DC multiverse and the legacy of their Golden Age characters through the Silver and the Bronze Ages of comics. I'm Peter Watson. And I'm David Steele. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us for part two of the 1971 Justice League and Justice Society crossover story. Part two is from issue 92 of the Justice League and it's published on the 20th of July 1971. Peter's going to tell you about the cover. We have a striking cover here, literally, but I'll start at the top. In the top left-hand corner, we're still in that period where there's no proper DC logo. Instead, we have DC written in the wingspan of an eagle that forms part of a shield that says Justice League of America. We have the normal Justice League of America logo to the right of that. And of course, it's only 25 cents, bigger and better. And to the right of that is a scroll highlighting the Justice Society of America. And both these logos are above the roll call for this issue. And it's the same lineup for both teams as we established last episode. And they are Superman, Flash, Green Lantern, Hawkman, Atom, Special Guest Star, Robin. There we are. And the main image as I said, is striking because literally you have Solomon Grundy standing astride some fallen heroes, including the Earth-1 Hawkman, both Flashes, and the Earth-1 Green Lantern. And he's holding up the limp body of the Earth-1 Superman. And he's saying, Me Solomon Grundy, me mightier than Superman, me mightier than all superheroes. So it doesn't look good for the heroes, does it? It certainly does not. Mm. Interesting, given the events of last issue, that Barry Flash is there in a not-torn-up-to-bits uniform. And yes. I can't see any sign of Hal's power ring. I wonder <gasps> if that's going to be relevant. Interesting. Right, mm. we shall jump straight in then. Our opening panel is a caption at the top with the Just League of America logo. And it mentions that it's co-starring the Justice Society of America. There's two large panels taking up this opening page. The first one is captioned. Just imagine Superman, the man of might, man of steel, the man of tomorrow. Now imagine two supermen. And we see two supermen. Presumably at this point, it's the Superman of Earth 1 and Superman of Earth 2. They appear to be trying to avoid each other in midair or colliding. It's not very clear. There are some captioning for the second panel. Just imagine Green Lantern with a power ring that can be activated by his mighty willpower. Now imagine two Green Lanterns and two power rings. Yes, yeah, a shot of Alan Scott. With his ring on his left hand, blasting off to the side, and Green Lantern Hal Jordan looking like he's totally been cribbed from a Neil Adams page, <laughs> flying down in front of him. He's also firing a beam from his power ring, which is marvellous. We turn the page, and we arrive at the top of page two, and there's a caption and an illustration very similar to what we got in part one of the story. Now picture this. Two Earths in parallel dimensions with parallel evolutions with parallel superheroes. Yes. Two Hawkmen. Two Flashes, two Atoms, even two Robins. Yep, there's a nice shot of the two Hawkmen flying and two Flashes running and the two Atoms with Ray Palmer holding on to, well, at least he's holding on to Al Pratt's head. Al Pratt's head finish returned after it's absent from the bulk of the last <laughs> issue. And next panel has the two Robins running through, well, I don't know, there's some grass, there's some long grass. Mm. Could they be in sort of swamp? I don't know. We'll find out. There's another caption box that continues. Who could possibly defeat the combined might of the greatest superheroes of two Earths? Only someone who is unique to both Earths. 
Solomon Grundy, the one and only. Yes, this episode's sponsored by Chesney Hawks. Mm-hmm. Full page panel for page three, Solomon Grundy. Do you remember like, in the 90s, whenever mm-hmm. in an issue of JSA or Starman, they would talk about Solomon Grundy and you'd get a flashback moody panel to them standing in a swamp? Yes. A little ragtag random bunch of JSA uh-huh. was all fighting Grundy. It all seems to be based on this image. <laughs> Grundy has Superman over his left shoulder. He has Green Lantern, Hal Jordan's arm in his right hand. We can see both Hawkmen stretched down the back and Jay Garrick with his helmet knocked off, lying in the, in the marshy ground as well. It's a great image. It's probably going to go on the socials. I would watch out for it. A little scroll tells us this story is illustrated by Dick Dillon and Joe Giella, but a larger caption underneath reads, This story is dedicated to Jerry Bales and Roy Thomas, who introduced the author to the Golden Galaxy of Justice Society stars, and to editor Julie Schwartz and author Gartner Fox, who first brought them all back to life. To these four, I will always be grateful. Signed, Mike Friedrich. Yes, and I suppose we will too. Yes, probably. We probably wouldn't be doing this podcast without their efforts. No, probably not. They probably wouldn't know each other without their efforts. Because, um, <laughs> as we've said in the podcast before, like, you know, Pete and I talked yonks ago, mm. years and years and years ago, coming up 10 years ago nearly actually probably, mm-hmm. about loosely doing an All-Star Squadron podcast. And it was only a few years ago that we decided to commit to to doing it on a much larger scale, the, oh, the saga of the, the Earth 2 heroes in the modern age. And yeah, without Roy Thomas writing All-Star Squadron, we probably wouldn't have developed a fondness for the Golden Age characters. And indeed, without Julian and Gardner bringing them back and mm-hmm. Flash 1, 2, 3 and other stories, we'd never be here. So yes, Mike, we echo your sentiments strongly. Yes. So page four is a nice handy recap. Lots of captioning for Peter. The panels basically show the little alien boy Aram and his pet Tepe and their separation, and the involvement of the heroes, and the arrival of Solomon Grundy, and the climax of, of part one. But Peter's going to read all those captions so I can take a drink of water. Many times things are not what they are, but what they are linked to. It is the bonds that define us all. This is a story about these shaky bridges, those fragile chains, life's broken links. Look upon a certain lovable pet known as Tepi to its young master, Arim. These two inhabitants of another world are bonded to each other from birth, their survival dependent upon their physical closeness. Cast separately into Earth 1 and Earth 2 by a warp storm in the dimensional void between both worlds, their lifeline was broken. In a desperate futile search for Tepi, Arim forcibly took away the power ring from Earth 2's Green Lantern, then successfully resisted the joint efforts of the superheroes of two worlds to recover the ring. While on Earth-1, another group of heroes succeeded in trapping the now-ferocious Tepi, despite the monstrous body changes brought about by the separation from its human link. Soon, the strange twistings of fate brought Arim together with the man-thing from Slaughter Swamp, Solomon Grundy. The alien youth sought something to ease the growing gnawing of his insides, something to protect him from the pain and the panic. Against his hated enemies, Solomon Grundy was all too ready to oblige. Yes, and this final panel of page four again depicts Grundy lifting Superman, ready to smash him down in the body of Hal Jordan, so the story resumes properly. The first caption for page five. Having stunned Superman with his colossal strength, the marshland monster now threatens the very life of the helpless Green Lantern. Superman starts to come to his senses. He wriggles in Grundy's grasp, thinking, I have to break Grundy's hold. 
before he uses my invulnerable body to squash Giel. And he twists around and slaps both his hands against the side of Solomon's head, thinking, this ought to loosen his grip. And as a massive swap sound effect, Grundy exclaims, Grah! Blue man, slap Solomon Grundy's ears. Blue man? That's just the Hulk, isn't it? <laughs> Hilarious. Caption for panel three. The biosystem of the Swampland Savage surges with magic, and a blow that would normally fell a giant redwood merely enrages the man-thing. Yep. Grundy hurls Superman to the ground, saying, You hit Solomon Grundy! Solomon Grundy hit you harder! And I must point out the unfortunate resemblance to former Labour Party leader Ed Miliband that <laughs> Solomon Grundy bears in panel three of this comic. Mm. The caption for panel four. Then, turning with a snarl, he turns towards the other heroes, saying, you try to save Green Lantern. He says this because Jay Flash is lifting Hal Jordan and bearing him away as Hawkman of Earth 1 lifts Hawkman of Earth 2 in the background and flies him out of danger. Grundy continues, But Solomon Grundy kill you all! And to the right of the panel we see Adam, who looks very upset at what's going on. He's clutching his, his face, looks very upset. The first panel of page 6 is captioned. Meanwhile, midst the mists and swirls of in-between, a never-never place, part of all places, yet part of none. Yes, we see our two alien pals that we saw at the start of part one of this story. The yellow faces, the purple masks, the big ears, the big eyes, and the little pet aardvarks, or pink space aardvarks, I should say. The first of the aliens, Emes, says, Locate them yet, Skyer? No luck, Emes. Little brother Arim and his pet Happy are probably separated in different dimensions. Oh, are we going to get it for losing them? You self-centered fool! If they remain split much longer, they'll die. Our computer is searching everywhere, tracing the life force that exists between the two. And with each passing moment, that force is weakening as the computer loses track of it. Yes, we get a nice panicked shot of Adam in the next panel, which is captioned. Though the eyes of Arim still shine with innocence, his soul blazes with the burning pain of being separated from his life-dependent Tepi. For a while, the mystic chemistry of Solomon Grundy had filled the gaping necessity for companionship. But now, something more urgent is needed. The desperate link to Tepi, a lifeline Green Lantern can provide. Now there's some excellent storytelling going on in this panel. And we can see in the background that Hawkman of Earth 1 has released Hawkman of Earth 2 and he's now capable of flying his own. Hawkman of Earth 2 rubbing his head is obviously coming too. In the foreground, immediate foreground, Jay is still rushing along with Hal in his arms. Aram makes a grab for the leg of Solomon Grundy to stop him catching the flash. And Aram says, Green One can bring me Teppy. Do not harm him. Grundy turns at this and says, Arr, Small One, stop me. Final panel of page six. You can see that Jay has deposited Hal Jordan, who's rubbing the back of his head, as all the heroes do, as he returns to full consciousness. In the foreground of the panel, we have Grundy's boot and Jay Garrick Flash rushing towards him, thinking, The alien's giving me an opening for a super speed attack. Tiny caption says, continued on second page following. In the first panel of page seven, some glorious flash action as Jay circles Grundy at high speed, thinking as he does so, if I can hit Grundy often enough, a million times a second or so, I should knock the stuffing out of him. It's glorious. Look at that. Grundy's crying. As Jay circles him at speed, punch, 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 punch. Looks a little contact points there. Very, very good. However, there's a caption for panel two. But the raw and harnessed energies of Solomon Grundy can stop even a human thunderbolt. Yes, Grundy just punches Jay with a crack sound effect as Jay circles him and we see the flash going flying. 
caption name for panel three. Then, before the man-thing can follow up his flash advantage... Yep, one of Earth One swoops down to the rescue, grabbing Jay under the arms and beating him up into the air. And as he does this, he thinks... While I do the rescue bits with Flash, my counterpart is saving Superman, as GL takes off on his own power. They'll need rest before resuming this battle. And we see in the next panel, final panel of page seven. It's page seven already. Wow. Hawkman bidding Flash away in the background as other Hawkman and Green Lantern take to the air. There is a caption that says, Realising that Solomon Grundy and Green Lantern cannot help him now, a restless, rejected Arim bounds off. Once again, he is friendless. Once again, he makes a frantic run for his life. This is terrifying. I feel mm-hmm. uh, this poor child. Anyway, it's one of our famous slow dissolves now as we arrive at the top of page eight. At the same time, in the not-too-distant Earth-2 Batcave... Yep. We should reiterate that this, all this action is taking place at, at the moment is taking place in Earth-2 and that Solomon Grundy at this point is on Earth-2 and yes. etc. We'll just emphasise that. Remember that for a couple of years down the line. So, we're in the Back cave of Earth 2, we are with the two Robins, and if you listened to our last episode, or indeed read JLA 91, you'll remember that the Robin of Earth 1 was attacked by Aram, who tore the front of his uniform off. So we see the two Robins, and you can distinguish them now here with their different uniforms, and also slightly different haircuts. Robin of Earth 2, the older Robin, is a bit of a centre parting, whereas the decoration of Earth 1 is a traditional sort of side parting. Robin of Earth 1 is saying, Phew! Some mess I am! I get smacked around with that alien kid like everyone else, and the Justice Leaguers regard me as an unproven, unfit child. Yeah, well, my reputation isn't much better. I grew up a superhero fan. I idolised them all. When I was accepted into the big-time Justice Society, I figured I'd hit the top. Only to find I had to start all over again, from the bottom. We get a wider shot of the two of them in panel two here, and we can see the giant Abraham Lincoln Penny behind Robin of Earth 2, which is cool. Robin of Earth 2 continues. If my mentor Batman had enough faith in me to choose me as his replacement, how come Hawkman won't even let me team up with him? And the very dejected-looking E1 Robin says, I'm going through the same kind of trip. Away at college, split from Batman, with the same general reaction from the JLA. Now, in panel 3, we're in silhouette. Robin of Earth 2 is obviously handing... Something to Robin of Earth 1. As he does this, he says, Before adopting my own new costume, here's one I considered. Fashioned by a costume maker I know. Neil Adams. Robin of Earth 1 replies, Say, that's real sharp. I like it. Let me try it on. And here is a link. Two young men from similar backgrounds facing rejection and alienation. But they form a team. And from this team flows... Renewal. It's a very dynamic shot of the two Robins, and we see that Robin from Earth One is now wearing a very dynamic new uniform. Instead of his little green pixie boots, he has sort of calf-length green boots. He wears yellow leggings instead of his bare legs, and his red top, full sleeves with green gloves, as opposed to the short green sleeves. There's a, a black disc with an R in it, and it's a long yellow cape. I like how the cape's kind of split so that it falls into two like glider yeah. arms almost. They almost. They're almost like wings. It looks like they're mm-hmm. attached to his arms. It's not it too great. Like we'll, yeah. we'll see what happens as the story progresses. But anyway, Robin of E1 looking very grown up indeed. Much less the boy wonder. He's saying, we were down before Robin, but now we're going to show him how high two Robins can fly. Right on, brother. Fantastic. Getting in the vibe there, Mr. Grayson. So the final panel of page eight, they're marching obviously towards the exit of the Batcave. Robin of Earth 1 is saying, so your world has that expression too. Guess you can't have everything cool. And we arrive now at top page nine. While in the Justice League Space Satellite Headquarters, oh, back in the Earth One universe, 
You see the flash, Barry Allen, still stretched out on the table. They left him last time with his torn and damaged uniform, Black Canary keeping guard. Canary's thinking, At last, after hours, I contacted Mrs. Barry Allen about her injured husband, the Flash. Seems so ominously quiet up here, no news about the alien beast, nor any report from Green Arrow and Batman on that emergency signal from Aquaman. Shortly after... Flash is getting to his feet, very shaky, obviously. Canary leans forward, saying, Flash is coming out of his coma again. Still weak and delirious, Barry says. Must stop him. Must stop. But then a caption for panel three interjects and says, Just then. And appearing in the JLA transport tube, it's none other than Mrs. Iris Allen, who's appeared quite a lot in the podcast. Yes. Recent months, I suppose, as the crow flies, certainly more than some of the superheroes. <laughs> Iris says as she steps from the tube, I came as quickly as I could, Black Canary. Oh, you're just in time, Mrs. Allen. Flash can use the nursing care of his wife. In panel four. Iris leans over Barry, saying, Oh, Barry, darling. Barry replies, uh, Iris? Yes, still very hazy. Here is another bond, the link of love. In health there is happiness, in sickness there is comfort and care. From this marriage flows strength. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? A slow dissolve, then, to another member of our cast who we haven't seen much since last week. Switching to Earth 2 again and Justice Society headquarters a few hours earlier. Yes, we're in the company of Green Lantern Alan Scott, who's walking along a corridor thinking, no word from the JSA yet about that alien lad who took off with my power ring after wailing the tar out of me. There's a knock-knock sound effect. And Alan thinks, ah, someone at the door. And then there's a massive weird doorway suddenly yes. open. I thought the heroes have shrunk. <laughs> And in flies Hawkman of Earth 2, bearing the Golden Age Flash, Jay Garrick. Hawkman of Earth 1, who must be mighty indeed because he's carrying Superman. And then, ring aloft, Hal Jordan, Green Lantern of Earth 1, flies in saying, Quick, get out whatever medical facilities you have. Wow, replies Alan. What'd you run into? Trouble. Big trouble, reaffirms Hal. We arrive at the top of page 10. Superman and Flash are sat in some sort of recovery position. Two Hawkmen look on. Alan is observing him as well. Green Lantern Alan Scott says, Superman, Flash. They're going to be all right? Hawkman of Earth 2 replies, No problem. They're made of pretty strong stuff. And his Earth 1 counterpart says, By this time, Solomon Grundy must be threatening his entire area. Now that we've taken a breather, the three of us have to return. And this prompts Hal Jordan Green Lantern to say, Make that four, partner. We need my namesake's experience. That's why I brought along my power battery. Hal gestures with his ring and his power battery comes flying in. That's very handy that he thought to do that. Mm -hmm. And he continues in the next panel, saying to Alan Scott, To fashion a limited power ring for you. Care to join in reciting my oath? It's my greatest honour, Lantern. And then the caption for panel three. Then feathered furies watch a sacrosanct scene. The solemn charging of the rings. This is a great panel. It may end up in the socials. I don't know. But we can see both Green Lanterns touching the power battery with the rings as they recite. In, in brightest day, day in, in blackest, blackest night, night, no evil shall escape our sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware our power. Green Lantern's light. Then the caption for the next panel. Then... Green Lantern, how Jordan's got some headphones on. He's saying, Our JSA communicators just picked up a call from the Robins. They found the trail of the alien boy. He split off from Solomon Grundy. Everyone looks a bit upset. This is in the next panel. Hawkman of Earth 2 says, Those Robin kids! And his Earth 1 counterpart says, We told them to keep out of the way. Green Lantern Alan Scott joins in saying, Whoa, I think you two hawks are overreacting. Age has nothing to do with capability. Can it? The more time we give Solomon Grundy, the more monstrous he gets. And that was how Jordan at the end there, on the final panel of page 10, Green Lantern Alan Scott is marching away saying, 
You heard the man. Let's go. And then Hawkman of Earth 2 replies, You lanterns tackle Grundy. We'll handle the young alien. So, page 11. Have you ever felt a hole in your gut? A hand wrenching your stomach, twisting it into so much shredded cheese? So this first panel, page 11, we see Aram, the alien child, almost in convulsions on the floor. It's very upsetting. There's a large old house in the background behind him. And another caption that says, Then perhaps you can comprehend the struggling, pain-wrecked, dying Aram. He's gained possession of a power ring that his alien senses tell him can bring him his life-saving pet, Teppy. And we're reminded of this with a shot of him holding Alan Scott's Green Lantern ring. The caption continues. His will is his desire, a combination that activates the ring. And we cut back to his brother and his pal on their spaceship, as MS says. Skyr, look! The Link Force has suddenly turned stronger. Somehow the two have established contact. And as the puzzled Arim wonders how to power the ring... Yep, he looks up and sees the two Hawkmen arriving. Arim cries, Batman, fly to me! Do they keep Teppy from me? Caption for the next panel. Once again, Arim utters alien sounds that are misunderstood. Yep, this is the trouble. This is bothering me about this story. There's the complete, almost complete lack of empathy the heroes are showing. They're doing nothing to calm yeah. down this frightened and lost youngster. Hawkman of Earth 1 is saying, <sighs> Listen to him snarl. Looks like we've beaten the Robins here, says the Earth 2 Hawkman. Surround him, but be careful. He's almost as powerful as Superman. Caption in for the final panel of page 11. Seeming like praying vultures to the weakening boy, he responds with a defiant rant. Yep, he obviously cries out again, but we don't hear what he's saying. A full moon actually looms in the background here. Take a drink, listeners. Hawkman of Earth 2 says, He's holding up GL's ring at us. If he knows how to control it... And there's a weird sort of woo sort of line in the background. I'm maybe guessing that's what the Hawks hear when they hear yeah. him talking. It was a guap in the previous panel. It wasn't too clear. However, we've now reached the top of page 12. The caption for the first panel there says, Just then, Arim's roaring anguish is matched by the sound of the high compression engines of the Bat Cycle. Yep, the two Robins have arrived, with Robin of Earth 2 saying, The Hawks have the aliens surrounded, but two to one, they'll still need our help. It's a great shot in panel two. We're up in the air with Hawkman of Earth 1 looking down at the two Robins as he says, Hold it, Robin. You and your costumed friend stand back. We'll handle this problem. I'm really losing patience with Hawkman's arrogance. <laughs> I'm going it's off a character it. trait. I know. He's, he's a complete... He's wonderful. <laughs> you know, he, maybe this is why I've never become a Hawkman fan. Anyway, panel three, Robin of Earth 2, throws Robin of Earth 1 up into the air as he says, They think they have a monopoly on airspace. Let's show them how the Flying Graysons used to operate. Your new Robin costume seems to have confused Hawkman. In the next panel, we get a really good look at the proper design of the, the costume that Robin of Earthbone is now wearing. We see that the cape is attached to his shoulders, to his wrist, almost to his ankles. It really does look like wings. He leaps over Aram, thinking, New costume works great. Ideally designed for acrobatics. This surprise manoeuvre should distract the alien. And indeed, Aram does look a bit surprised at what's going on. And in the next panel, we see the Earth 2 Robin hurling something towards the alien child, thinking, My good old Batarang still comes in handy. And then he's successful in panel six, as the Batarang soars past Aram and manages to hook the power ring from his grasp. Robin thinks, A perfect ringer! And then the final panel of page 12, we're back with MS and Skyer in their spaceship. There's a real jaggedy effect to this panel. One of them says, Life contact has been broken. Aram hasn't got a chance now. Oh my gosh, things are getting serious. I wish there was some way of telling the heroes what was going on. I'm getting mm. so frustrated. 
The first panel, page 13. Like a sun that explodes into a nova before it dies, so does the fast-fading A-Rim erupt into a final fit of violent action. Yes, the poor child cries, Tappy! Tappy! I must have Tappy! And he starts smashing up a fence that's in front of him. Hawkman of Earth 1 flies down behind him and thinks, Got to whip my anti-gravity belt around him, make him airborne out of harm's way. Oh, he's unsuccessful. In panel 3 there's a caption that reads, But the alien's heightened reflexes are too fast for the winged wonder. Yep, there's a quack sound effect as Aram strikes Carter, knocking him to the ground. Caption of panel 4. Then, out of the darkness, another bird leaps to Hawkman's aid. Yep, Robin of Earth 1 leaps out, striking Aram and making him sort of pause. Hawkman struggles to recover in the foreground. Final panel of page 13. Dick Grayson of Earth 1, Robin of Earth 1, confronts Aram and says, OK, Junior, I'm joining your swinging party. In the first panel of page 14, Oh, Dick very helpfully tells us what he does as he says, First, a karate chop to disarm you. He knocks the stick out of Aram's hand. And in panel 2, Dick continues saying, Then, a nerve paralysing to... Hey, he's crying like a baby. And we see that he's twisted Aram's arm and Aram indeed starts to howl and then looks very, very pained and upset over the next two panels which gives Robin pause, and he thinks in panel five, poor kid's in agony. I couldn't have heard it that much. And then he considers what's going on in panel six and moves towards him in the next panel, thinking, it's no act he's putting on. I can tell. Maybe I can calm him down. For the first time since his accidental arrival in this world, Arim senses human warmth and concern. Yep, he reaches for Robin in the next panel. The rage of seconds ago dissipates like steam in the wind. He flings himself into Robin's arms, helplessly clings to this warmth of newfound friendship. Then, with an ominous moan, he lapses into unconsciousness. Yes, he's cradled by Robin of Earth 1. He looks very concerned in this panel. The child cries. And the caption concludes page 14, saying, Is this Arim's death gasp? Arim's death gasp, supported in Montrose Avenue at the Wedgwood Rooms Portsmouth in 1997. Mm. Over the page now to page 15, the caption for the first panel. Elsewhere, a different destructive force strikes in the night. The one and only Solomon Grundy. Yeah, I bet you were wondering what happened to him, listen as I was. A full moon looms in the background as Solly stands atop a rocky outcrop and hurls a massive boulder down at a metal structure as he cries, Break bridge! Random acts of violence captioned for panel two. Suddenly, the darkness is split by a pair of pulverizing beams of emerald energy. Yes, these pulverizing beams of emerald energy strike the next boulder that Grundy was going to hurl, shattering it into a million pieces as Grundy goes, Arr! And then, very helpfully in the next panel, Grundy looks up. This is wonderfully rendered as Green Lantern of Earth 1 and Green Lantern of Earth 2 both zoom down overhead and Grundy cries, Green Lantern? Two Green Lanterns! First panel of page 16, we see the wrecked bridge, the two GLs flying down. Hal Jordan says, Grundy's boulder barrage is causing the bridge to collapse. Grundy's boulder barrage also supported the Montrose Avenue in Portsmouth in 1997. Alan says, You take the bridge, while I take my arch fall. <laughs> then Hal Jordan starts noodling an amazing you know, guitar solo. <laughs> Grundy turns towards Alan in panel two, crying, Me hate! Green Lantern, we kill him. Your ring not hurt Solomon Grundy. Alan thinks he could be right. He can't seem to get much fight power out of this ring. As he tries to blast Grundy with his ring that Hal Jordan set him up with. Caption for panel three. While at the falling bridge, another power ring failure. Hal's having some trouble. My power ring's fizzling out. 
Apparently, the dual sharing of the power battery has drained each ring of its effectiveness. Well, he should have thought of that before he left the house. Mm. Caption name for panel four. Frantically calling his namesake to his side. Two green lanterns fly down towards the bridge, both firing power beams at the structure, restoring it. And Hal says, See, it takes two rings to operate as efficiently as one. And he continues in the next panel. Say, that's our clue. By working together. Combining both our wills behind our single power source, we can unleash enough emerald energy to zap Grundy. Alan replies, it's worth a try. Let's do it. Tiny caption says, continued in second page following. We passed an advertisement that encouraged you to finish high school at home, and top of page 17, the first caption says, Here is yet another lifelink, the age-old bond of battle. Two green gladiators intently join their determined wills, and... From this union under fire comes an irresistible force, against which there can stand no immovable object. Which is Mike Friedrich noodling away when basically all he could have said was the two Green Lanterns combine their power beams which zap Grundy and force him to the ground. Gosh. And from this lifelink flows victory. Yep. Two Green Lanterns walk towards Grundy who's face down on the ground. Green Lantern Allen says, We've beaten him, but it's just about exhausted us. How do we hold him? Says Hal, and then caption for the next panel. Then the soft light cracks the horizon. Ah, the Hawkman of Earth-1 arrives in the scene, flying down towards the two Green Lanterns, and Hal points and says, There's Hawkman, and yes, he has recovered your stolen power ring. Oh, so actually it was Robin that recovered the stolen power ring. <laughs> Let's not big Hawkman up here, he's been a complete <laughs> in this episode. Top of page 18. Large caption for a small panel of Alan Scott. Racing as fast as his thoughts will take him to charge his ring, the original Green Lantern returns to Slaughter Swamp, where a man-thing is returned to the land of its birth. <laughs> yes, I'm tempted to get a tweet out of this panel as the two Green Lanterns just fly overhead with a kaplop, just drop Solomon Grundy on his backside on the ground. Both Green Lanterns are firing their power rings in the next panel. Alan is saying, This entire swamp land is totally desolate. Devoid of life. Good enough, says Hal. Who'd want a monster for a neighbour anyway? They clarify what they're up to in the next panel. It's done. Our combined powering energy has created a barrier Solomon Grundy can never break out of. Yeah, panel three, we can see that they're both firing the powerings, creating a, a large circular fence or ring around the swamp. And then the next three panels, as Hal narrates, is a sequence of Grundy trying to punch his way out unsuccessfully. And the final panel of page 18 shows Grundy marching off with a caption that says... Perhaps here too is a link, a unique swamp and its resident man-thing creating the bond called home, from which flows contentment. That's probably going to be the last we're going to see of Solomon Grundy for a while. I'm trying to remember that. Let's know it's GLA issue 92, Summer 71. Remember that for mm-hmm. if when he ever pops up again. So a slow dissolver at the top of page 19. And what of the parallel menace on Earth 1? Yes, we're suddenly back with the Superman of Earth 2. Remember him and the Atom of Earth 2, Al Pratt, and the Atom of Earth 1. Ray Palmer, and they're all looking down at Tepe, who's surrounded by some movement lines. As Ray Palmer observes, Alien Beast is shrinking, losing its fierceness. So naturally, we can expect to see a similar situation on Earth 2. Yes, the two Green Lanterns, the two Hawkmen, and the two Robins watching as Aram shrinks back down to size as well. Hal Jordan says, The lad is changing, getting weaker. Hawkman of Earth 1 says, He's no longer a threat. Robin of Earth 2 thinks, Something wrong here. Hawkman of Earth 1 says out loud in the next panel, From what Superman told us about the beast on the other Earth, I'm glad we didn't have to battle both aliens together. Green Lantern of Earth 2, Alan Scott, says, Yeah, 
Bad enough that coincidence once again had us fighting a similar foe in our separate worlds at the same time. And this causes consternation to the two Robins, who both look very puzzled and say question marks question out loud. Mark. Caption for the next panel. To put almost imperceptible clues together into a single idea is a rare talent provided by common training from the two greatest detectives of two worlds. Robin of Earth 1 points to the shrinking Aram and says, Wait a minute! You guys are missing the boat! This boy's dying! Which prompts Hal Jordan to say, Maybe it hasn't been coincidence. Maybe we've got to bring the boy and beast together for them to survive, to live normally. That would explain a lot of things that have been happening. Let's give it a whirl. And for the next panel, we cut back to the two aliens in their spaceship and a caption that says, But is there enough time? Very pained Emerson Skyer looking at their readouts and their pets are looking very pained as well. One of them says, The life light is almost out. Aram and Teppy are in the throes of death. Why'd I ever think ride joying in between dimensions would be fun? Who indeed, space alien guy, over the page to page 20. The first panel has a caption that says, While Skyer's heart bears the scarring responsibility for his actions, the Green Lanterns lead the way across the bridge between Earths in their desperate mission of mercy. Yeah, we see a Hal Jordan creating a bubble which is carrying the two Robins, and Alan is creating a bubble which bears the two Hawkmen and Aram. Panel 2. All the heroes stand united. We can see both Supermen and both Atoms and both Robins and both Hawks and both GLs. Hal is bearing Aram down, putting him on the ground beside Tepe. As Hawkman of Earth 2 says, This has to be one of the wildest ideas I've ever heard, Robin. But something about it just seems right. And then, Robin of Earth 2 says in the next panel, Right as can be. With us, it's in union, there is strength. And Robin of Earth 1 says, With those two aliens, it's in union, there is life. And we see a delighted Tepe and Aram coming together, reunited. Hal and the two soups and everyone all around watching, it's fantastic. And then we cut back to the spaceship, and Emmis is saying, Skyer, the lifelight is blazing bright. It's a miracle. And indeed, there's a big red light flashing on the screen in front of them. And Skyer says, Aram and Teppy are together again. It'll be easy to find them now. And then, caption for the final panel of page 20. Shortly. Al Pratt looks to the sky and observes, A spaceship. And his Earth One counterpart stood in his shoulder says, I bet it's connected with our extraterrestrial visitors. Sure it is, Ray. Over the page to page 21, Aram and Teppy are being beamed up into the spaceship as Atom Al Pratt says, You're a winner, Tiny Titan. They're going back home. Inside the spaceship, we see the aliens all happily reunited as Skyer lifts his little brother and cries, Ennis, we've both learned a valuable lesson from this experience. Yes, Skyer. We've even grown enough to face the music for hijacking this spacecraft. Gosh, a slow dissolve. Caption for the next panel says, On Earth 1, a couple of heroes face their own music. Yeah, we see Hawkman of Earth 1 shaking hands with his Robin, saying, Put it there, Robin. I owe you an apology. And his counterpart shaking hands with the adult Dick Grayson, saying, Same goes for me, Robin. Guess we old foggies tend to ignore your training, enthusiasm, your new perspectives. To which Robin replies, Oh, come off it. I've been with you long enough to know your experience is probably the best teacher a guy can have. And then the caption for the next panel. As each of the heroes goes his own way. Yes, very odd. Nothing to indicate the JSA is actually returning to their own Earth. But we see the JSA heading off one side of the panel and the Earth 1 heroes heading off another direction. Robin of Earth 1 looms large in the foreground thinking, Well, back to my interrupted case in my original uniform. Funny thing though, I kind of like this one. 
I just may keep it. And the caption underneath that says, What do you think, readers? Would you like Robin to switch to this new costume? Write us, let us know, editor. And the final panel of page 21 is a close-up of Robin of Earth 1 as he thinks, wonder where Batman is. This must be the first time he was in on the beginning of a Justice League case, but not the end. And the caption says, That's right, Robin. This is not the end. And then as we arrive at the top of page 22, the caption for the first panel says, Yes, if only the Teed Wonder could know why the Cape Crusader has been absent so long. And we see the silhouetted shape of a figure wearing a hat and bearing a rifle that has a sight on it. And this shady figure is thinking, The timing has been perfect. The Batman has been kept busy tracing my finally left trail. We can see in panel two that he's cocking the rifle, bringing it up to aim, and he thinks, Leading him here, into the sights of death. The rest of the page is taken up with a massive view through the sights as we see Aquaman Green Arrow and Batman, dead centre. And a caption says, To be resolved, next issue. But not next episode, because we won't be doing that. So if you want to find out what happened next, listeners, you can check out issue 93 of Justice League of America somewhere else at your own convenience. That's it for issue 92. Yes. Much, much more straightforward than part one. Yes, I think I enjoyed that better, to be honest. It's certainly a lot easier to record. <laughs> I did like the Hawkmen come up and that they got. That was good. I was worried that they wouldn't sort of eat a bit of humble pie, to be honest. Yeah. I was delighted when Robin and Robin had the idea and twigged what was happening, mm-hmm. that there might be a link between the creatures and stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's all quite simple in the resolution. I mean, the main thing I wanted to do is just compare it against the first half, which was so overwritten. I wonder if maybe yeah. the second one, a lot, lot simpler, mm-hmm. maybe just because Mike Friedrich maybe didn't have his own time to write it or as much time to write it i don't know he had quite a lot of his flowery language in yeah. there he just went on for quite a bit of raid joining as well yeah, right join i mean <laughs> listeners you would not believe <laughs> why can't he just say joyride like a normal person uh-huh. no it's because mike friedrich wants to it's from know, another dimension or sorry in between yes. dimensions no yeah, i wonder if the in between dimensions survived the crisis oh we'll never know well yeah that's what they'd call the bleed these days so, oh yes so, yeah. is that what they're so, from i'm guessing they're right joining in the bleed right joining in the bleed there's a bruce springsteen album title for you <laughs> i like the fact that we got a good fight with grundy and some big clear mm-hmm. panels and that grundy yeah. walked off to cause more hassle yet still mm-hmm. be locked in Mm-hmm. Grundy does not come back for a long time. No. It'll be interesting to see if that gets referenced if, he's, if and when he's seen again. I do like Grundy as a threat because basically when they go up against Grundy, it's almost like when the Marvel heroes go up against the Hulk. Yeah. Also, I really liked how Grundy was portrayed in this because he looked more monstrous in his face like he did in the Golden Age. Yes. Whereas in, like, from the Silver Age onwards, he kind of looked a bit more human-y, cartoony. Uh, cartoony, yeah. Cartoony, yeah. yeah. I, know, I know what you mean. He mm-hmm. certainly looked a bit more frightening. Yes. Definitely with his in such a way. Big squint teeth and everything. Yeah. And yeah, and those dark patches around his eyes. Yeah. yeah, it's really horrible. Did we get a proper resolution on the no we soon Barry came to and Iris was there? That was about all we got yeah. for that, wasn't it? Black Canary left to just be the secretary again, mm-hmm. virtually. I liked the, the two Green Lanterns working together. That's a couple mm-hmm. of times now in the team ops where they've been involved, you know. Yeah. A third real team up with the two Green Lanterns yeah. to help uh-huh. solve everything. That's always fun. I liked how House Solution didn't work because he'd basically split the power between the two of them. Yeah. So it's like, oh, it hasn't worked and I've worked out why it hasn't worked. Yes, let's, that was a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, that, that was quite fun. I don't yeah. like that. There's not, I mean, I don't think there's too much to add. It's a much, much, I mean, all, this, all the obvious wordy setup was done in part mm-hmm. one and yeah. this was basically just the race and the, all the fights mm-hmm. to kind of get to the conclusion. There's not an awful lot to add to it, just beyond the general praise that Dick Dillon can do quite well and yeah. I would have maybe liked the Atoms to have been a little bit more involved, but... Yeah. 
And Jay Garrick to maybe be there for the resolution as well, considering but, he was yeah. such a big part of it. It was nice to see the two Hawkman working together for probably mm-hmm. the only time, really. You do get them briefly in issues 170, 170 and they miss a terrific story. Right. They don't briefly. They, do, they, they don't have, have much interaction. No. Yeah, they don't have to fight any monsters. Or... They do team up to do some repair work. Yeah. But that's it. Oh, why that? Yeah. yeah. But that's weird. It's so mind yeah. that. But, but you know what I mean about them taking an active part. In uh-huh. that. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to see the two of them. Yeah. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of the two Supermen together. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was almost as if the two atoms were acting as a kind of chorus at points, just to kind of point <laughs> out the bleeding obvious. I would have liked them to have been a little bit more involved. But mm-hmm. the stuff with the two Robins was excellent. Yes. Seeing, seeing the two Hot Men together as well was excellent. So that kind of balances it out, to be honest. Mm-hmm. You know, the two owls and the flashes loss was everyone else's gain, I think. Yeah. And costume designer Neil Adams. Yes. <laughs> now, it's interesting. I mean, that, that costume is broadly similar to what the adult Dick Grayson will end up wearing in a few years' time. Yeah. In the revived All Star comics. We will see adult Earth 2 Dick Grayson at least once before the revival of All Star. I'm sure he's in at least one more of the JLAJC mm-hmm. team ups. Maybe yeah. he's in two of them. Nice to see that costume. Nice to get a mention for, for Neil Adams. So, is that the Neil Adams of Earth 2? <laughs> Must be, yeah, yeah. There we are. Interesting. He's a costume designer for. He's the Paul Gamby of Earth Two. Yeah, that's fascinating, <laughs> isn't it? That panel of the two Robins will definitely end up in the socials purely for that reason mm. alone. And of course, they used that costume or a very similar version of that costume in Batman Three Hundred as well. That's one that we're we're still debating whether or not we're going to do, aren't we? Yeah, it's far away, but you know we might do it. We're hunting on because we're talking about doing Batman Three Hundred, we're talking about doing Superman Issue Three Hundred, we're talking about doing Action Comics Five Hundred because these are all kind of be- the big benchmark issues yeah. that are published during our mm-hmm. our sort of time. It's used for the adult Dick Grayson in Batman Three Hundred yeah. again, uh-huh. isn't it? And it's it's interesting. My Batman collection is minuscule, but I own a copy of Batman 300 just purely because he has that costume yes, to cover. of course. So we probably will do it, listeners, I'm sure we will. If you have strong feelings either way, you can always let us know. I don't really have too much more to say about the story, do you? The soap opera aspect that Mike Friedrich's bringing in is quite interesting with the whole... Oh, you mean the, the links between the, the stories? Hangers. The yes, old, the old uh-huh. school 60s Doctor Who style? Yes, uh-huh. it does add something new to the, the storytelling. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's creating the interesting incentive for the, the reader to come back and follow the next issue. I mean, we talked about, in our preparation for this episode, I suggested that we did the final page of issue 90 as a pre-credits for issue 91, but they're really so similar, it, it would have been very repetitious and a bit yes. daft. And it's yeah. also to the cover as well yeah so you know so you'd have been sick of batman <laughs> moaning about the flash being dead and peter having to talk about flash's tattered uniform but it's interesting that i mean i'm, I'm tempted to dig out my copy of 93 or maybe just move over to that bookcase over there and flick through the omnibus to see what happens next mm-hmm. but of course we will be doing issue 94 yes so stay tuned for that stay tuned for that one indeed listeners mm-hmm. so some more mentions of man thing again yes egregiously i think this is definitely the last time we'll see that because there's no way DC can really continue. Well, Swamp Thing has made his debut by now because issue 92 of House of Secrets was published on April the 1st, 1971. Ah. A mere three and a half months or so before issue 92 of JLA. And the Swamp Thing ongoing series would start in August 1972. Okay. Maybe that explains why Solomon Grundy disappeared for so long. Maybe he thought it was bad enough they were calling him Man Thing, <laughs> but now that DC were publishing Swamp Thing. Yeah. I suddenly think, listeners, I'd love to see a Swamp Thing versus Solomon Grundy story. Ah, yes, can you imagine? Yes, mm, mm, mm. Mm. A few years' time, maybe. <laughs> so, yeah, so the Man Thing stuff, it just cracks me up, especially as they kept using it after the character appeared. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely, I wonder if that's why you didn't see Grundy for such a long time. Could maybe be. because they've been using that term for him and Man Thing was being published. Mm-hmm. And 
Swamp Thing got his ongoing and it was, didn't last that long. Did okay yeah. for a couple of years and then mm-hmm. he was popping up in Challengers and, and all sorts of things and Brave and Bold and all that. And then you had Spawn of Frankenstein kind of like pop up, became, mm-hmm. became kind of like a similar almost sort of character. Yeah, backup of Phantom Stranger. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Speaking of backups, there are yes. a couple of reprint backups in this very issue. Mm. The first one is a reprint of the One Man Justice League from Flash issue 158. Great story. Which came out on the 2nd of December, 1965. Brilliant story. Worth it alone just for the shot of Barry Allen wearing Hal Jordan's Green Lantern uniform. Yes, it's brilliant. It's a great story. And the second one is Space Enemy Number 1, reprinted from Mystery in Space 29, which came out on the 18th of October, 1955. Excellent. That's by John Broom and Carmine Infantino. Looking through it now, it's it's very Carmine. It's so Carmine, it hurts. It's great because obviously back then, unless you found a place that had old comics there were no reprint collections there was nothing yeah well this is true we're, mm-hmm. but we'll be talking about such things at length in our next episode we certainly shall now before we leave JLA 92 completely and move on to the, the contemporary correspondence I'll just point out it has a house ad for an issue of Lois Lane one of the last giants that used the numbering for the 80 page giant system Ooh. which reprints The Girl Who Mourned Superman which Yay. is obviously a story that we did in the podcast a good couple of years ago now, mm-hmm. so if you haven't heard that one, listeners, dig back in your podcast deliverer or supplier and give that one a spin. It's quite an early one that we did. Fun, fun story. Lois transported to parallel worlds. Great fun. And not quite as torturous as some of the other Lois Lane stories. <laughs> so we'll now skip ahead to Justice League of America issue 96 for the JLA mailroom. And the first letter says, Dear Editor, Superb! This is the only word that comes into my mind when commenting on the ninth annual Justice League Justice Society team-up. I even go so far as to say that only the original team-up, which is a classic, is as good as this one. The first half of the story, JLA 91, Earth the Monster Maker, didn't seem to promise much. But the sequel, Solomon Grundy, the one and only, was unbelievably good to the point of being frightening. I say frightening because, for the first time, the JLA was shown as something more than a costumed police force. They were depicted as a group of highly trained and highly experienced professionals, which gave them a kind of mystique. I'm disagreeing with everything in this letter is saying so far. <laughs> Yet, this was not done at the expense of characterization. On the contrary, the JLAGSA were shown as humans who could make mistakes and lose their cool under the heat of battle. I must say this rates as one of the very best JLA stories I've read. And I've read almost all of them, and my praises for Mike Friedrich knows no bounds. I was one of those conservatives who groaned when Gardner Fox left the scripting of the JLA to Denny O'Neill. However, I must admit that Denny, Mike and Bob Kaniger have shown that they can write the JLA just as well, and even better than Gardner Fox. Blimey. I've been reading the JLA for over eight years, and I confess that I've never enjoyed a story as much as this one. I must also say, the continuing at the end of the story was a masterstroke. And I hope you continue the practice. How's that for a sick joke? Just before reading the latest issue, I'd gone back and read my entire collection of JLAs in order to see the transition the JLA had gone through. I would honestly have to say that the JLA has once again reached the peak it was at the early 60s. May you stay there forever. In reading back issues, however, I came to the conclusion that John John's wasn't such a bad fellow after all, and perhaps Denny O'Neill did away with him rather prematurely. If nothing else, bring the Martian Manhunter back for a guest shot soon. As far as I know, 
He's out in space by himself, still looking for his fellow Martians. And that's from Tom Halliday, Youngstown, Ohio. I disagree with that. I mean, we didn't really talk about it. See if we were rating them, mm-hmm. all of the JLA-JC team-ups, this would not be top tier for me at all. Really? Aside okay. from the novelty of the Hawkmen mm-hmm. and Robins working together, yeah. it was so overwritten at the top. And just mm. apart from those team-ups, they didn't really do anything new at all. I liked some of the characterization. I did like the Hawkmen being... As arrogant as they were, because yeah. they are. Well, yeah. That's a wonderful character trait that they have. Uh-huh. And it's, I keep saying it back to Hawkman's insistence that Gentleman Ghost isn't a ghost, and he quite clearly is. I, yeah. I always find that hilarious. But beyond that and stuff <laughs> with the Robins, there was nothing. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I really think it's the, in many ways, it's the poorest. For story complex, I mean, mm-hmm. there's a difference between story complexity and being overwritten. And first mm-hmm. off, I mean, it might be almost verbal diarrhea that he's typewriter, I think, mm-hmm. at points, but. Alien child separated from its monster pet. Yeah. This is not good for them. They start going mental. They're reunited. Mm-hmm. The end. But fight Solomon Grundy along the way. And that's it. Yeah. There's, there's mm-hmm. nothing really. Yeah. I disagree with him in that regard. So apologies, <laughs> Tom. But anyway, the editorial response. Our correspondent is asking for a sequel to And So My World Ends. That appeared in May 1960. So he's talking about John Jones, basically. Mm-hmm. You don't really need to read that because it doesn't apply to the story we've just covered. So I'll read the next letter. Dear editor. I've finally been able to pinpoint what it is that I dislike about Mike Friedrich's recent work. It's the captions. Aha! Hey! Gardner Fox had a tendency to overdo his captions, but at least he always kept them as they should be, descriptions of what is taking place. The ideal caption is objective and equivalent to a descriptive passage in a text format. Friedrich, however, doesn't seem to know this. His stories are full of philosophical captions, like those on page 8, panel 4, and page 9, panel 4, JLA 92. Let's just have a quick look at one of them. Page 8, panel 4. Here is a link. Two young men from similar backgrounds facing rejection and alienation, but they form a team. And from this team flows renewal. Yes, that's fair. And page 9, panel 4. Here is another bond. The link of love. It's the Barry Nyris one. Yes, Peter was rolling his eyes at some of this while he was having to read them, (laughs) listeners. Our correspondent continues, I can't stand them. If they'd just been left off, the story would have been 100% better. Well, I don't know. Mm -hmm. The Robin one may have been phrased differently, but anyway. Please, Mr. Friedrich, if you want to get your philosophy across to the readers, there are more subtle ways. But the story, at least, was good. Solomon Grundy, the one and only, had a nice, serious science fiction adventure plot that has always been DC's trademark. Robin's new costume and the way he got it were good. It certainly is my vote for permanence. Ooh. Imagine they had. Yeah. You know, anyway, Friedrich's handling of the characters was also good. We got to see more of the characters who were gypped last issue, the two Robins and the Green Lantern duo. Also enjoyed was the well-planned lead-in to the next issue, an inescapable, till next time of course, trap for Solomon Grundy. As far as future Justice Society appearances go, I now possess all their jailie appearances, and have tabulated the number of story appearances for each. Ah, Peter did something very similar to this actually not that long ago. Doctor Fate, seven times. Flash, Green Lantern and Hawkman, five times each. Doctor Midnight, Our Man and Starman, four times each now. This must be JLA appearances. Yes. This doesn't include solo appearances in no, Flash no, no. and Showcase or what have you, right? Mm-hmm. Atom, Johnny Thunder, The New Red Tornado, Superman and Wonder Woman, three times each. Mr. Terrific, Robin, Spectre and Wildcat, two times each. Sandman, once. <gasps> well, I, well, I don't know. Was he, in, was he in the last one as a silent person sitting around the table? Oh, yeah, he was. I remember him, because he, he was last properly active in the one that Grundy was last in. Mm-hmm. Anti-matter man, yeah. I remember he was firing cement blocks out of his new Sandman oh, gun no, and yeah. all that sort uh-huh. of stuff. Yeah. I'm sure he was sat around the table in GL82, mm-hmm. wasn't he? Yes, I'm pretty sure. No, I'm just wanting to see if I can reach over oh, and okay. check. Here's the book. 
Yeah, he is. Yeah, you can see him there. He is. Wesley's in the big pit when they're all sat around the table on page 20, panel 3. I don't know if he has any lines, but he certainly sat there. And then the, the correspondent says, Batman, none. Which again takes me back, Nonsense. which is wrong, because Batman's yes. been sat around a couple of tables. And, uh-huh. and he was in that painting as well. Yeah. With his yellow oval. <laughs> he probably just means active in stories, I think, doesn't sure. he? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, rather than sit around the table. But tables, he has appeared. Yes. Yeah. Our correspondent continues, admittedly, some of the low men have had other appearances. The Earth 2 Batman, for instance, has appeared at least three times. Open brackets and brave and bold. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I think what he's saying here is Sergeant Rock and Wildcat, I'm guessing. Mm, could be. Uh-huh. But we've debated that endlessly and we'll be here all night if he starts up again. Yeah. And he concludes, but I think they should appear here too. And that's from our old pal Richard H. Morrissey, Framingham MA. Now, as you totally disagreed with the first one, I disagree with quite a bit of this one. His notion of what a caption is, is wrong because it's literally what we always say is the say what you see caption. I hated the say what you see caption. Yeah, because the art should be telling the story. Exactly. The caption should be something that enhances yes. it or sets up a location or whatever. You know, it's just something different from what you actually see. Yeah. Some of Gardner's though were very, they really, you would read the, you were reading the caption and that, and then I was just saying, and that's basically, yeah, the yeah, caption's uh-huh. basically, there was, we still get point, that. Uh-huh. It got to the point, it was really too much of it though. You uh-huh. got to the point, you sort of think, right, does he credit his audience with any intelligence? Yeah. Or his artist with any talent? Yeah. And you always sort of wonder whether the artist just going, yeah, I'm just going to do the minimal here. I'm just going to, you know. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating how much that changed because mm-hmm. a lot of captioning, I think, as we go on is just scene setting, like suddenly or yeah. meanwhile or across town. Friedrich is definitely getting very flowery. Yes, very much so. There's a lot of it around at this point, though. Mm-hmm. Bob Haney as well has been doing interesting the captions. Roy's yeah. active, heavily active at Marvel at this point, isn't he? Yep. Roy Thomas and, you know, Roy's flowery writing is not something that, you know, anyone could dispute, I don't think. Yep. Editorial response then to Richard H. Morrissey is, By a stroke of coincidental fortune, the next GLA-GSA adventure will coincide with the publication of issue 100. Need we say that the story will be an all-star one? Julie Schwartz. Need we say that episode or those episodes will be all-star ones? Yes, we are laying plans. Some of you listening may already have heard about some of these plans. Mm -hmm. Mm. The next letter then. Dear Editor, you know, it's a simple thing to letter of comment and abominably bad comics. comics comics. Harsh words are easy to come by and hurling invective at some deserving target can get to be fun. Then again, I suppose I'm sadistic. Simple too is the task of writing a letter of comment about a superior-ish. Open a thesaurus to fantastic and start writing. But how do you comment intelligently on an all-around blah issue? <laughs> Say, for example, GLA 92. What happened to Mike Friedrich's writing? Sure, it was good. He's probably one of the best writers over at DC. But it barely lived up to what I'd come to expect of the man. Of course... I suppose an alien whose frantic attempts at conversing in a tongue he does not know would sound like angry snarls, and a monster who sounds like a bad Tarzan movie do not good dialogue make. Even so, the story bordered on preachiness, and the theme, in union there is strength, life, was transparent. A little subtlety works wonders, Mike. Gosh. Rather than bore you with a discourse and a plot I did not like, my dissatisfaction probably stemmed from the fact that I do not like A, the Justice Society, <laughs> B, Tepe and Arim, and C, Solomon Grundy, I will launch into an exciting discussion of Robin's new costume. I like it. Basically, that is. In his old costume, he looked like a 12-year-old. You'd think he'd have been embarrassed to put it on after he passed the age of 15 or so. Wake up, people! Robin is a big boy now! He's a... <laughs> that sounds like a movie poster. Wake up, people! Robin mm. is a big boy now! 
He's a college, dare I say. It's man, and should look like one. Thank you, Neil Adams, for allowing him to. Two complaints, however. The mask is very strange looking. I don't like hair sticking out of the top like that. Either give him a mask a la Green Lantern and let us all marvel at the fact it just stays on his face without any apparent means of adhesion, or give him a complete black cowl. Just think, that way he'd look like an executioner. Intriguing possibility. I'm not sure I like the cape. It looks fantastic airborne, but kind of ragged when it's not fluffed out. <laughs> and that's from Susan Bregman from Spring Valley, New York. Editorial response. There was a mixed bag of letters in the old new Robin costume about as many in favour of a switch as for standing pat. A sample of the latter follows next. Dear editor, I am absolutely furious. You've changed Robin's costume. JLA92. After all these years of my congratulating and finally having a seriously dressed comics character, Comics again. Robin being non-super, I always loved the human costume he wore while doing non-super things. Skin tights. Bah! Robin was the only one without leggings, making it easy to avoid detection. His arms were clothless too. He could wear any clothes he wanted over a tunic and briefs, and carry small boots, gloves and cape neatly packed into a briefcase. With all his action on campus, a practical costume is a must. And that's a serious point. Would they? How seriously would they change Robin's costume in a comic that wasn't published by the Batman team? You know, yeah. that's, that's an uh-huh. interesting thing to think about. Anyway, letter continues. I can just see it. Someone burns down the administration building while Robin is struggling with his manny hose. I'm never going to read your stupid comics again. I, I, hey, wait a minute. The next to last page of the story? Can it be? Oh, happiness unbounded. You're going to give the fans a choice. Thank you. Thank you. May the red and green Robin of happiness forever remain in his former costume, and I'll love you forever. The story and art were great. I got so carried away with the righteous indignation I almost forgot about the story. Hey, I know. In JLA stories, have Robin wear his new costume, and in all other mags, have him dress as old. How about it? And that's from the astonishingly named Mercy Van Vlack, Norristown, PA. Don't tell Mercy about Nightwing. Editorial response. What? Let Robin have a double identity as well as a double uniform? That adds up to a double no to us, Julie Schwartz. And the next letter says, Dear Editor, I just can't get my mind off JLA 92. I just can't believe it. What I mean to say is that Mike Friedrich just wrote the greatest JLA story I've ever, excuse me, I mean the greatest story I've ever read in any comics. Stop saying comics. And honestly, the best story they've ever read. Grief. <laughs> he writes a better story each time. The first half was overflowing with action, but the second part really hit home with Solomon Grundy. The rejection and the mutual bond between the two Robins, the tender moment of healing love between Iris Allen and her injured husband, the great team power, which has lain dormant in the JLA for so long, and I could go on forever. But the one great calamity which rose above all of Mike's indignant series of plots and subplots was the ordeal of poor Arim. Mike's unbeatable writing had me in pain when Arim was in pain, in tears when Arim was in tears, and I could feel every agonising moment that Arim felt being away from his lifelink Tepe. And Robin's embrace of pity and reassurance really projected Mike's realistic writing abilities. About the dedication, I'm glad to see Mike still likes Roy Thomas, even though he writes for your competition. Maybe God will forgive him. <laughs> Maybe God will also forgive Kathy James for calling Mike a crummy little writer in the JLA mailroom of issue 92. If anyone doesn't like this story, it's only because he isn't mature enough to appreciate the great writing skills that Mike Friedrich has. And that's from Mike Friedrich's mum. <laughs> Sorry. And that's from Doug Michael from Enid, Oklahoma. 
Gosh. No editorial response to that. <laughs> the best JLA story ever? No. Well, there you go. Strong disagree. Not even the best, by any stretch, the best Mike Friedrich story we've done by any stretch. I'd take the Harlan Ellison torture over that one again. <laughs> anyway, dear editor, good afternoon and welcome to another potpourri of Chasma commentary. This afternoon, the topic of discussion is that supergroup of the 70s, the Justice League. I thought supergroup of the 70s would have been the Jacksons or Crosby, Stills and Nash or Paul McCartney's Wings, the band the Beatles could have been. Yes. Anyway, I guess this is as good a time as any to bring up the radical thought that the Just League of America should officially become the Justice League. Ooh, 16 years ahead of your time. After all, in those confused days of communication failures and ridiculously disputed borders, who needs a chauvinistic group of super beings to claim only a small part of the planet as their home base? Wow. Besides that, America is not the United States of America. Furthermore, a goodly percentage of the Justice League aren't even native to the USA. By no means is this an attribute to be looked down upon. I merely observe that they have somewhat arbitrarily chosen America, that is, the United States thereof. Superman is a Kryptonian and is having doubts about his place with any of human calibre. Hawkman is a Thanagarian. Why the heck does he even bother to hang around here anymore when his police studies assignment must have expired a long time ago? That's a fair point. Yes, true. Aquaman is, although American-born, king of the seven seas. And isn't there a law saying that no American citizen can hold a title of royalty and still retain his citizenship? Green Lantern has pledged to protect all of Earth. Black Canary is of another Earth. And as far as I know, she's never applied for citizenship on this Earth. Retired members John Johns and Wonder Woman are from Mars and Paradise Island, respectively, and I don't believe the latter even gained her citizenship legitimately. The original concept of a Justice Society of America had its purpose in the patriotic 40s, but that concept has little or no place in the global village of the 70s. So, let's hear it for the Justice League. Why, the headquarters isn't even America anymore, but 22,300 miles out in space. Well, let's call a halt to this bombastic barrage of Kasmanian divilry, and with a hearty, Curbure exclamation point and a healthy Shazam, he vanished from sight. And that's from Charles Chasm, Mayerson, Orland Park, Illinois. Go away, Charles. You're overdoing it. But I suppose it's an interesting point. And you know, I say 16 years ahead mm-hmm. of his time. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I think Justice League was Justice League for many of those reasons. Yes. Editorial response. Almost sounds like a case of America. Love it or leave it. Nothing changes, does it? Gosh, Julie Schwartz. Yeah. Shocking. Well, then. Listeners, that's it for the 1971 Justice League, Justice Society crossover. Probably the most simplistic one of them all. Yes. Peter's trying to be tactful, listeners. <laughs> He's, he doesn't, I'm, and I'm not being downly negative on it. It was fine. I mean, it was, as we've said, the good stuff of the Robins and Hawkman. But, yeah. And I suppose you could argue maybe it was nice to have a smaller, intimate threat rather than mm-hmm. universes colliding and all that. Yeah. Maybe next time there'll be a bit more to it. Next time there'll be a lot more to it. Mm. Yes. Now, if you want to let us know what you think about this story, you can get in touch with us by emailing us at theearth2podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you follow us on social media because we're posting up lots of bonus material for this and indeed every episode on Facebook and Instagram at the Earth 2 Podcast and on Twitter at podcast underscore Earth 2. And you can always leave us a voicemail. You can go to speakpipe.com forward the Earth 2 Podcast and leave us a message. We might even play it on the show. That'd be lovely. Please do. Anyway, if you're feeling generous, you can go to wherever it is you receive your podcasts and let them know what you think. And as Peter said in the last episode, spread the word, tell your friends. We're grateful to those like our pals Ross and Rich and Max because they often share our posts. But um, get involved. Spread the word. Tell your mum about the Lord of Batman or player that episode. She'll love it. This is what? This is our fourth year of releasing episodes. Yes. Fourth calendar year. That's insane. Mm-hmm. Gosh, with many more to come. Indeed. Indeed. And on that bombshell. I've been Peter. I've been David. We'll see you again very soon on 
the Earth 2 Podcast. Transmatter cube activated. Return coordinate set for Earth Prime. But now we're going to show them how high two robins can fly. It'd be funny if you'd said how two high robins can fly. Wow, man. <laughs> <laughs> and Earth 2 Robin says, Right on, brother. <laughs> <laughs>